I was going to say something vulgar. I'm going to change my mind. I'm going to speak slowly. Take my time. <laughs> I'm going to breathe. I'm going to breathe. I'm going to enunciate. Thank you for listening to Let the Right Films In, your podcast on the IMDb's top 250 filmmaking masterpieces of all time. I am your host. I saved a village, and all I got for it was permanent exile. I could never go back. I could never see my sister again. I'm Tyler Hannon, and I'm all alone. <laughs> Except for with me uh, today. <laughs> I, don't, I don't really count her most of the time because she's just like a permanent fixture. Uh, Kayla... My spiritual bobblehead. Hey. Just nodding around over here. <laughs> and joining us for the first time today uh, is the Ashy Taco herself, <laughs> Lauren Belisi. Hi. We are here today to talk about a, uh, a certain Hayao Miyazaki movie. But before we get to that, we're going to talk about some stuff we've watched recently. Lauren, why don't you kick us off? I just rewatched Green Room. Um, yeah. Yeah. Us too. <laughs> yeah, because they just uh, released the DVD, and uh, I was walking through Walmart, and I started screaming like bloody murder because I was so excited, and it was really embarrassing. But excited uh, for bloody murder? Exactly. I I was thoroughly impressed. I mean, I love love awful awful horror movies, and I'll watch the worst ones. But this, but to see an actual like high quality creative imaginative like and just bloody in all the right places like horror movie come out in theaters in the year 2016 is just it's it's all i could ever want out of life (laughs) we're big proponents of green room so we're all about that i love that movie and i miss anton yelchin me too we went to we went to the midnight premiere of it (laughs) it was amazing (laughs) there was like two other people there we work at or Taylor no longer works at a video I store. I quit. <laughs> I hope to. I plan on quitting soon, but we'll see how that goes. But uh, so we also had the DVD for that. And I did you ever see Blue Ruin? I did not. You should check out Blue Ruin. Uh, the, the director Jeremy Sunier also did that in 2013, and he's just a master of tension and suspense, and just a little bit of dark humor here and there to really just hammer home how terrible mm-hmm. things are. His first movie, Murder Party, is a super funny horror comedy that we watched a couple weeks ago. Just while we're, really, like, while we're really plugging all of that. <laughs> Available on Shudder.com, which is not a sponsor, but could be. <laughs> hey. But yeah, uh, did you have anything else on Green Room? Was there anything that you especially liked about it? I Well, I like how they're... When I watch every time I watch a horror movie, I, I automatically start picking out all the tropes. Like I, I wait for them and I, I watch them. I just pick them out, and they they didn't really. This was there was nothing really cliche about this movie, um, and there was no me screaming, "Don't go in there, you idiot!" You know he's on. <laughs> yeah, like they every, every character was pretty self aware and and pretty. And I love oh I love that um I, the ending was great. I really thought that I want I don't want to spoil it for everyone listening. 
But um, I thought it was very cre- just cre- I keep using the word creative because they just I don't know it. Oh, I just look at a bunch of words like they just. <laughs> It, they, everything they did is the complete opposite of what's out in theaters right now. Like, there's no jump scares. There's no, like, like relying heavily on, like, really crappy CGI. Like, sorry, The Conjuring. Um, <laughs> oh, my God, The Nun and The Conjuring, too. I mean, oh, ooh, so scary. So, so, congratulations on that CGI. I had more issue Beautiful. with the tall, skinny man or whatever his yeah. name was than The Nun. <laughs> the Nun, oh, my God. I just... The, James, I think James Wan peaked like at Saw One and and that, that's been, yeah, and that's that's been it. I mean, the uh, first Insidious was I thought was great, um, and then everything else is like mm, jump scare and how many uh, real life situations that Ed and Lorraine Warren were in that I can make a movie out of. <laughs> I will say that's the, that's the part <laughs> of the conjuring I probably care about the least is the based on the true story stuff. Even as I really like uh, Pat- Patrick um, Wilson, Patrick Wilson, yeah, Patrick like, Wilson, oh, he's great. Vera Farmiga in it, but uh, yeah, I love both of them. But yeah, I really cannot yeah. really care less about the more the real life Ed and Lorraine Warren. You know what's really admirable? I, about... see, I care. <laughs> I'm sure it's an interesting story, but like when it comes to like these movies. Mm-hmm. The Conjuring movies themselves, I don't, I don't know, like, it's built on their relationship, but, like, I almost, especially since they're apparently total frauds, uh, <laughs> uh, I, I don't, I, you know. Debatable. Debatable. Yeah, that's what, that's what I was saying, like, I'm, I shouldn't say apparently, allegedly, like, there's some back and forth between that. I feel like that the, the real life stories of them would be even more interesting just in their own right as a separate thing. I, don't know. I agree. But uh, I was going to say about Green Room, the, what's really admirable about it is, you know, the brutal efficiency of neo-Nazis. Yes. Really commendable. Oh, my God. They just got the job done, you oh know? Oh, my God. There's the Hamilton reference to be made there, but I think it would be so disrespectful, I can't even say it aloud. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I think my favorite part about Green Room is that pretty much, yeah, again, everything that I expected to happen did not happen. Yeah. And it was every part of it was just a new and interesting twist. I do want to say it does subvert a lot of tropes, but I one of the things I like most about that fact is that it doesn't go out of its way to point out that it's doing that. Yeah, it doesn't bait you with one trope just to give you the next thing, kind of. Um, it it just kind of does its own thing without drawing attention to itself, without patting itself on the back or saying we could have done this, but we didn't. We didn't. We did the other thing. <laughs> but, yeah, so nothing... I think we, we've talked about Green Room a couple times because it's really good. And R.I.P. Yeah. Anton Yeldon for yeah. all time. My sweet prince. Uh, <laughs> we'll get to see him in Star Trek. Ugh. <laughs> uh, was, there, was there a second thing you wanted to talk about that you've seen recently, Lauren? Um, well, we, I, my mom and I have, we have, we have our little hashtag on Twitter called Betty and Lola watch a crappy movie. Oh my God. That's your mom. I did not know that. Yeah. It's my mom. <laughs> and incredible. We've been watching really bad movies partially on purpose. Um, and don't blink is, is a movie from 2014, um, starring the guy that Megan Fox is married to and, um, the bully from a Christmas story actually with the yellow eyes is in that too. Uh, so I knew I wasn't going to be able to take that seriously from the beginning, but, um, <laughs> 
What what a horribly awful, disappointing movie that had potential to be something cool. I it it was they they just lead you on so hard and then worst maybe the worst ending of maybe any horror movie I've ever seen in my entire life. I actually watched that I think earlier this year and I like was so annoyed that I literally wrote down a list of mm-hmm. things that could have made this movie not terrible. Oh my god, Mina oh Suvari is in this? Yes, Mina Suvari. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm looking at the IMDb page right now. And Brian Austin Green. Uh, yeah. I think but, the uh, worst ever is when a really interesting concept is wasted on a bad mm-hmm. movie. Yes. This is why I'm more down on Hush than most people, or not most people, that's pretty mixed, but uh, more down on Hush than some people because while it's competently executed... It's a great idea. That could have been much more. But we still love you, Mike Flanagan, director of Oculus. And what's he doing next? Uh, Something big. The Halloween remake. Yes. That was like a really big thing. (laughs) (laughs) A really big thing. Yeah, the next Halloween. But yeah, Don't Blink is uh, not great. What are some other noteworthy entries from your uh, watching bad movies, your hashtag? Uh... Hmm. Well, we, we we watch Christine. I mean that and that that Stephen King movies are always bad, almost always. Oh, okay, I want to say almost. <laughs> no, there, I think they. I think there are a lot of really really good Stephen King movies, and then I think that are some that are made for TV on purpose, like Trucks. Like Trucks is like oh, no, we that we didn't need a Trucks movie about the killer trucks. All right, that was not. That was, no one asked for that. Um, Christine is, is, is great, and I, I think I like it so much because um, I, John Carpenter directed it, I believe, uh, okay. I believe it's a Carpenter yeah. film, and I like ev- pretty much every single thing he has created. Um, I just I just hate how anticlimactic the ending of Christine is. The only thing I know about that is that it's like a possessed car and that my aunt Christine is continuously pissed off about its existence because I guess she got teased a lot in high school. Really? <laughs> because of it. Yeah. <laughs> so every time so every time she hears about it, she's just like, Oh, whatever, stupid car movie. <laughs> Do you really do you really not like Stephen King movies, Kayla? It depends. I was gonna say it, uh, it The Shining and Carrie exist. I'm so... actually so yeah. here's the thing. I am like like I'm Stephen King's like weird stan, in which I admit that a lot of what he's put out. Isn't we talk great. about him a lot on this podcast. Yeah, no, I, I like low key love Stephen King. Like that's super my introduction into horror when I was younger. I started reading Stephen King novels, but like I think that uh, there was definitely a period in his life where he was just throwing the rights to his books away to anyone who would give him money for them. And that's how we end up with a lot of like. Oh wait, you don't eh. like the mess, do you? No, I do not. I at don't, all I like, don't the like the mess. mess <laughs> but you also have Stand by Me, Shawshank Redemption, Green Shawshank. Mile, Misery. Yeah, but there, I I don't uh, really like Pet Cemetery. I don't really like Misery. I, I haven't actually seen, haven't seen Misery. I haven't oh seen my god. 14... I... Oh. <laughs> I haven't seen 1408, but I actually there are defenders of that one. I think most of what it, the issue is is I'm very salty about the lack of a good adaptation of Salem's Lot. I we've talked about this on the podcast before, but I would probably sell my soul for like an HBO miniseries it of is Salem's odd Lot. That there isn't, uh, at least you have Dreamcatcher. That is almost exactly the example of the bad one. <laughs> like what? And we have it coming soon. I really hope Ew, that that's going to be good. good. It's too bad it lost the director. I know. That's why I'm, like, maybe less excited. <laughs> <laughs> you know. 
Well, now that we've gone on a full Stephen King tangent <laughs> for a not Stephen King movie. Steve King. But always welcome, Steve King. He always has a place in this podcast <laughs> as Steve King. <laughs> but Kayla, have you watched anything recently or have you been too busy nabbing up all those Eevees? <laughs> so actually, funny story. There are two things I'm going to talk about. Well, technically three, but the first one you can kind of roll in together. So as all of you may know, this crazy uh, indie Pokemon catching thing came out last week. Super under the radar. So, so underground. But anyway, so in celebration of that, Ben and I rewatched the first two Pokemon movies. So Pokemon the movie Mewtwo Strikes Back and Pokemon 2000. Uh, Classics of our time probably it's exciting we're actually gonna work our way through i think most of the pokemon movies like up to at least five or six because i think that was where i grew out of the age range for them (laughs) but um the first two surprisingly hold up like uh the first one is interesting because not a whole lot happens in it aside from like, they go to the island, and Mewtwo's like, bah, I hate all humans. And they're like, no, you can't! You can't do that! You can't destroy the world because you're mad! And But, like, it has some great commentary on, you know, the whole, the circumstances of your birth don't determine what you do. It's very cute. It's good for, it's good for the kids. Pokemon 2000, on the other hand, is a little bit more simplistic. Uh, my main issue with that one is that you have this, like, British villain who's there to catch Moltres, Zapdos, and Articuno so that he can get Lugia. But he kind of just, like, isn't good at anything. <laughs> like, he catches Ash and Misty and Team Rocket and is like, ah, ha, ha, see, I have captured the birds. And he's like, anyway, I gotta go do some stuff, so you guys just hang out here. So while he goes to do whatever, they break out Moltres and Zapdos. <laughs> and, like, his entire ship goes down and he's just like, ah, darn, whoop, I guess I'll just hang out here until Lugio shows up. And then later, after balance is restored or whatever, like, he tries to catch Lugia. Lugia just immediately breaks out and, like, hyper beams everything and stops it from happening. And then Ash gets the treasures and fixes everything. And he's just like, oh, as it began, so it will start again. And then he just leaves. Like, that's it. I'm like, what What was your plan here? Like, I think that that is a brilliant commentary on the falling upwards of the early 2000s in America. <laughs> Maybe, but yeah, I, you gotta I don't know. you gotta look a few levels deep for it, but it's there. <laughs> it's there. Um, another thing that I think is unappreciated about this movie is we have this interesting storyline where it, it kind of seems like Misty is coming to terms with having feelings for Ash because the other girl that's in this from the island, Melody, teases her a whole bunch throughout and like implies that she also has a crush on Ash. However, it seems to me that those two spend most of the movie flirting, and I think that the real secret couple in that movie was Melody and Misty personally <laughs> and that would have been great and adorable oh my childhood mind just now went <sighs> oh man <laughs> i think i have to agree with you on that <laughs> i mean i am the resident like gay spiracy theorist <laughs> but 
I really think that that is <laughs> what we should have been focusing on the whole time. As long as Taylor Swift never makes like a big commercial movie, we don't have to worry too much about it. <laughs> I have no idea what you're talking about. Oh, we sorry. must strike that from the record immediately. Oh, apologies. <laughs> but, uh, take so anyway, so the other thing that I've watched recently, I've been really busy, so I haven't had a lot of time to watch stuff. But we picked up Pride and Prejudice and Zombies from Redbox just kind of on a whim. And it was surprisingly delightful. Really? Like, I wouldn't say that it was I was going to say, is it one good? of those things where you're like, it's not a good movie, but I had a good time. It wasn't actively awful, <laughs> which is kind of what I was expecting. And I guess by virtue of having negative expectations, it was better than expected. But it was pretty fun. And I'm notorious for really not liking Jane Austen at all. And it turns out that to make Jane Austen interesting, you just have to throw in some karate zombie killing. I mean, there is a whole book series based on that idea, isn't there? Um, sort of. Are they not all Jane Austen novels? No, okay. there's oh, there's another it's one. It's just like general classic literature? It's, yeah, there's like the Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter. Is that the same thing? It's like the same Oh. Genre. That was, that was not a good film in, in my, <laughs> that I did in my, not my see, cute so. little opinion. <laughs> But yeah, no, there's like a Sense and Sensibility and Sea Monsters, I think, is the other one that's a Jane Austen one. But I, yeah, anyway, so that was an interesting movie. I think that Lily James is really cute and like actually a pretty interesting actress, and I hope that she's going to get more interesting things to do than like Pride and Prejudice and Zombies and Cinderella. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Cause Cinderella I think, was a major hit. I mean... Yes, it's a Disney movie. <laughs> like that's like being like water is wet. <laughs> but yeah, so if you're looking for just like it's like a fun popcorn movie, is what I would say. Tyler, what have uh, what have you been watching recently? So I've just been looking up Lily James because I don't think I know that person at all. She was um. But she's gonna be the lead in the next Edgar Wright movie, so your wish is already granted. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I knew it. I knew she could do it. <laughs> well, I have watched a couple of things since we last recorded. I'm going to go over two of them. I just want to point out that Tyler rented a literal stack of like 30 movies because he had free rentals and we just have movies everywhere right now in our apartment. They're, they really, I don't know, they set off the feng shui in the right Living way. Living Yeah. You know, I have like plenty of options. Besides also Netflix and Shutter and Amazon Prime. You know, I just, you never know when you might not be able to find anything else anywhere <laughs> on the internet to watch. And so you need to have uh, compromised physical copies of the medium to watch instead. Uh, <laughs> but one of the, I, I'm going to start with the thing I didn't like as much because I want to finish on the stronger note. I watched Mr. Right. Uh, which yeah. is the Anna Kendrick and Sam Rockwell movie. Directed by the uh, esteemed director of Nicolas Cage's Rage. <laughs> and written by the internet's favorite, favorite person, Max Landis. Uh, uh, he, I will uh, destroy him one day. <laughs> <laughs> uh, podcast guest uh, Patrick has still not thrown him in a locker as promised. So I have uh, temporarily banned him from the podcast for such. But Mr. Wright... I heard it did pretty terribly when it came out, and I heard not great things. Uh, I actually kind of enjoyed it, but that is almost entirely due to the fact that Anna Kendrick and Sam Rockwell might be the most charming people on this planet. 
I, I love Sam Rockwell, but he's often in movies that I think are... He's, like, the best part of bad movies. Like, I didn't like the way, way back at all, but I love Sam Rockwell in it. Mr. Wright is not good, but I really like Sam Rockwell in it. And Max Landis is just a person who has tremendous confidence in his own wit and intelligence, and it shows very much on the screen because the movie is very confident that it is super witty and intelligent and uh, subversive, and it's not really any of those things at all. He's just not nearly as clever as he thinks he is. But it, I, I almost... Max Landis? <laughs> no! What? <laughs> that doesn't it's sound almost, like him at all. It's almost like he's not even close. It's, uh, he's, uh, just not, not a huge... I'm personally inviting Max yeah. Landis to come fight me on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> but, I, I actually kind of enjoy, I, I usually curate the things I watch in a way where, like, I'm not gonna spend time on Zoolander 2 or things like that where everyone where the consensus is pretty much this is terrible and a waste of time. I generally like to make time for the good things because there are many good things that I haven't seen yet, and I want to make time for those in my life to and, and make you know enrich my life a little bit and justify the two hours I spend sitting on the couch watching a thing. But sometimes it's fun to watch things that are lit that are bad, but in a kind of complicated way because I feel like it furthers... Let's see, how pretentious can I sound? <laughs> I feel like it... It makes you appreciate the good it stuff It expands more. <laughs> my cinematic vocabulary. I agree. I agree with that. <laughs> but like, it, it, kind of, it, puts, it puts the other things in perspective. It makes you appreciate when a movie is actually really smart, witty, and uh, got some delightful rat-a-tat dialogue. And it also shows that, you know, while we... While the while people like to give actors and actresses less credit because they generally don't write any of the dialogue or anything like that, if you get the right one, they can elevate some material that isn't that great. Well, and plus, also, I'm a total stand for Anna Kendrick and Sam. <laughs> well, plus, like sometimes it is fun to just watch a goofy movie, even if it oh. isn't great. Mm-hmm. The other thing I watched is much more intelligently written. But also features many delightful performances. I binged the entire 18 episode season of Crazy Ex Girlfriend recently. Oh. And I have been hearing great things about this show for the longest time, both from friends, uh, articles online, podcasts I've listened to. Basically, the internet and mass has really likes this show. And I think it's very deserving. Uh, it is. So the title can turn people off which is understandable because it's called crazy ex-girlfriend but it is a musical series uh that is that features rachel bloom who is like this youtube musical comedy comedian and uh, she is the main actress she's one of the lead songwriters and she's also a producer on the show it's like her baby and she is absolutely incredible as rachel bloom who is this really uh this this very successful New York lawyer who runs into an old fling from from uh, high school, basically, or maybe middle school, and up and moves to the other side of the country because she found out that's where he's moving as well. And But she has to come up with reasons why she's doing that because it sounds absolutely crazy. The, move, the uh, series uh, 
it works best if you see the whole thing because there are a number of threads that go run through the whole season and take a long time to pay off. You might it, it leads you to think that you that it is um, like she's our main character, and when you're when you're looking through the eyes of the main character, uh, actions that might otherwise be terrible seem like they're being portrayed in a positive light. See everyone who idolizes Walter White on Breaking Bad. Uh-huh. Um, but this show does a really good job of paying off the fact that she does have some serious issues with depression and anxiety. And it really shows how most, like all people are, are, de- are flawed, some more deeply than others and kind of how that manifests itself in their lives and how even the people who mean the best can do terrible things and how, when you are a main character, you you see yourself as the hero of your own story. Or like in our lives, we're all the main hero of our lives. And this show does a great job of showing the straightforward version of that and then showing the other side of it and how you think you're the hero in your story because you're you're the person. You're you're in your own head. But sometimes that means you're the villain because you're ruining other people's lives by doing terrible things. Um, it's also just a really funny show with some fantastic songs and incredible performances. I just, I really enjoy, uh, besides the fact that it is jokes all over the place, that it uh, examines mental illness in an intelligent way that isn't often seen on television. And it brings a lot of issues to broadcast television that aren't often represented on broadcast television at all. It's complicated and nuanced and it... It also shows how hard it is to change yourself as a person. <laughs> also, my best friend and wife, Eva, features prominently as an extra in one episode, and it's the greatest thing that's ever happened. Yeah, frequent podcast guest, Eva. <laughs> I, have, I, I had heard of friends finding her on television shows and, you know, screen capping and losing their minds on the internet. This is my first opportunity to do so, when suddenly, in episode nine, in the first song, her face is prominently shown. And she's going to be so mad at me for bringing this up on the podcast. <laughs> I can already feel her anger from uh, California. All the way. I can feel right a bit now. of... You might say it's a bit of a tremor. <laughs> that was horrible. That's a, little bit of, that's a little bit of geography humor right there. <laughs> but yeah, uh, Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. I It's complicated, and I really enjoy it. And I can't wait for season two. Also, there's a guy with the last name Serrano. Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> and I just... Anytime... Anything makes me think of Shay Serrano... That's a, that's a positive moment in my life. but So that's what we've watched recently. Now we're going to talk about something completely different. <laughs> Princess Mononoke. Now watch closely, everyone. I'm going to show you how to kill a god. Fire! Princess Mononoke, the 1997 film from director Hayao Miyazaki and Studio Ghibli. It was one of the most expensive animated movies ever at the time on a budget of 23.5 million American dollars. It was a blockbuster in Japan and made $157 million. And I'm sure we'll get into it a bit, but the uh, release in the United States was a bit of a debacle and it only made $2 million here. Though it did pretty well in DVD sales after that. 
Despite that, it was a huge success and convinced Hayao Miyazaki to keep on directing. It is one of five of his movies on the IMDb 250 where uh, where it has an 8.4 rating and is number 65 on the list overall. And it's pretty widely acclaimed to be a great movie, as many of Miyazaki's movies are. It's got a 92% on Rotten Tomatoes top critics and 94% with general users. Basically, anywhere you go, people love this movie. They think it's great. It's almost a matter of degrees, whether you think it's his best or, you know, it's only Miyazaki's, like, third best movie. It's, like, not not nearly as good as Spirited Away. <laughs> but, yeah, uh, let's, yeah, let's just get into it. Let's talk about Princess Mononoke. Lauren, we're going to start with you. Uh, you wh- picked uh, Princess Mononoke as one of the movies you wanted to talk about. Uh, why don't you talk about, like, the first time you saw this movie and kind of what your feelings were about it. I was nine, I believe, and it was actually on Cartoon Network. And Cartoon Network used to show a lot of adult, like, movies, which they shouldn't have been showing at maybe, I mean, at night, I guess. And I remember just just turning it on, watching it, and thinking, oh, this is going to be, like, a beautiful anime movie for, for children. And then, oh, my God, Demon Blood. (laughs) Um, and, like, demon tentacles thing coming out of a boar, and, oh, my God. Um, And as a kid, I was terrified. I thought it was, like, really amazing, and but also slept with the lights on for a few nights after that. Um, Also, as a kid, I remember, like, thinking or understanding that it was kind of about um, nature preservation, like, humans versus, like, like what we do and produce, um, how that, like, ruins, like, nature. Um, And then years later, I learned about the whole leprosy theory. And earlier this year, Miyazaki um, said in an interview that, yes, the, the urban legend is true. It's, it's definitely about that. And so I had to go back and rewatch it. And I was like, all right, I have to, I have to talk about this. We have to discuss how this, this is real. This urban legend is, is a real thing and not just something the Internet like, came up with because um, it completely like, reworked my entire like, opinion of the movie. So. Interesting. I have not heard that before. <laughs> so really? I'm glad to know that. Yeah. <laughs> well, let's talk about it a bit then. The leprosy theory. So uh, there is a there, trying to think exactly the the name of where Ashitaka is, but he's in this kind of like factory, and there are people there that have bandages around their faces and their bodies, and um and they say that oh my gosh, what is her name? Iboshi. Iboshi. They say that like, oh, Iboshi is the only person who wasn't afraid of our illness, who like washed our skin and wasn't afraid to take care of us. And from that, a a theory was spawned that they're lepers, and that um, Ashitaka like having this curse and like being exiled and having to go find a cure is also a metaphor for leprosy. Ton. Of, there's like a ton of interviews about it, but basically, Miyazaki said that he was. When he before he wrote the movie or when he was writing it, he had visited a bunch of people who had leprosy, and so he could make the movie like as like authentic as possible. Um, so he actually went into writing it with that um, in mind. When in reality, I guess the rest of the world just thought it was about human versus nature um, and us destroying it. But he he really like put that like as like the honestly the main theme but like this huge underlying theme and that that blew my mind i don't know why but it just kind of blew my mind um i because i when i went back and rewatched it 
Um, it had the movie had like just a deeper, much sadder meaning to me. That's actually super interesting to me because like to me it seemed obvious that the the people with the bandages had leprosy, but I guess I just kind of thought of it as almost maybe throwaway detail isn't the right phrasing for it, but just the thing is like, oh, these are the lepers. Anyway, moving on with the story, you know? Mm-hmm. So it's interesting to see that that's more, like, actually more in-depth than I thought. Yeah, he, I'm trying to, let me see where the quote is, but um, he said... Oh, gosh, where is it? Uh, While making Princess Mononoke, I thought I had to depict people who are ill with what's clearly called an incurable disease, but who are living as best as they can. While making the film, Miyazaki visited a sanatorium for Hansen's disease in Tokyo and met with former patients that had been cured, drawing upon his experiences for the film. Um, So, yeah, so that was all included, like, on, like... Like, I also initially thought it was kind of not like a throwaway detail, but kind of like, oh, these people in bandages are are fighting with the women, like, at the end, like, awesome. Um, I didn't really think of the symbolism behind that, how important it was to have them fighting alongside the women, um, defending the village at the end. Um, it just made it so much more sad, so much more, uh, I don't know, it just added a whole other layer for me. That's interesting, because we had talked about before we started recording, um... I was thinking on Iboshi's motivation for including, like, the prostitutes and the lepers and whatnot, because to me it seems that on a surface level it's a very good thing of her to do to save women from brothels and to let lepers work for her. But at the same time, the the dynamic in Irontown still seems very much to separate them. Like, you still mm-hmm. have the men in the beginning trash-talking the, the women and you still have the lepers completely separate from everybody making the guns on their own and so but now that you bring that up like them being out at the end and all fighting together kind of I think speaks more to like maybe with a Boshi gone they're like or with a Boshi not around all the time they're almost able to think better for themselves yeah I it's it's weird it, that it's weird that you mention it like, or that you put it like that because, you know, they're praising her, you know, in the beginning. And then when she's gone, they're sort of actually like sort of in a way fighting for her. Like they're all together and it doesn't matter um, what they are, where they've come from. They're all just defending like their their village, like I guess, like for her in a sense. But but also I, for themselves. Yeah. 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 Because like, yeah, for me, it's interesting because I very much I, I don't think that Eboshi is like cut and dry evil or anything but I do think she's very much a businesswoman and I think she very clearly recognized that it was a good idea to have the marginalized people on her side and be like super loyal to her and again I think that with her direct influence removed they're able to come together better I agree that's an interesting take on an almost more evolved than many of the take and then um my first take on Eboshi which was I with one of my favorite things about the uh, Princess Mononoke is Eboshi's moral complexity mm-hmm. because she is greatly lauded by the members of Iron Town because she has, in their eyes, lifted them up and given them purpose and some and given them worth in a way. But and does it hmm. so in the movie? She is not uh, portrayed as particularly caring. She is very, like you said, businesslike and straightforward and uh, like really uh, 
focused on her goals, regardless of what happens in the process. But it gives you these things to kind of counterbalance it. And she's not like the evil businessman you'd get in many movies. She is the, uh, she's basically the mayor of this town and is looking out uh, for the town's best welfare, but it could also be her, what the best things are for her. And I don't know, I, I, I almost I almost like the more the reading of the movie that's a little kinder to her, just because I enjoy that kind of counterbalance where what is happening is clearly wrong, but many of the people who are perpetrating the wrong just don't fully understand or internalize what it is that they're doing. Yeah, I think that's a great strength of Miyazaki movies is that kind of moral ambiguity where you don't really have a straight good or bad guy. And I, for me, I, I feel like it's a little lazy because I do compare Mononoke and Nausicaa a lot of the time, but they have very similar themes. And in Nausicaa, you have kind of that same that same thing going on. Like you have, yes, there you have the invading people, but also we're shown that they are human beings and they're just like right, like they're not necessarily evil. And I think that that's what separates his films from so many other films, like animated or not, is that gray area because without that i don't know without that it's just it's boring it's it's hard to be invested in any of it in my opinion that's why um i mean this is getting towards the end already but that's why one of my favorite things about the ending and one of the more interesting things about it is on the surface the ending seems very light and happily ever after they're cured most of the people are saved they can rebuild and oh they've learned their lesson but taking into account the entire movie um ashitaka yes uh has been exiled from his home the forest the gods of the forest are all dead and many people have died and so what it really is is the tragedy is kind of unavoidable with the progression of civilization. These casualties are going to happen regardless in a way just by sheer like ignorance isn't quite the right word, but like it's going to with the hubris hubris. (laughs) But uh, it's like the lesson I took from it is almost (laughs) these things happen. We have to make the best of them. In a way, I think it's a little nihilist. Yeah, I don't know. Like I, I, because like these terrible things happen. These people are gone. Like and like, I mean, we see people get decapitated and get arms lopped off and all that. And like, I don't know. Maybe it is a little nihilist, but I also feel it's kind of, kind of what the story is saying is that mm-hmm. because the forest gods are gone and you know things they a little bit of goodness and a little bit of doing what's right. Uh, saved the day in the end, but the day is still completely altered from what it used to be. Things are different, and not necess- And I think you can make the case different in a way that is kind of bad. And it's not just because sometimes you could say different isn't always a bad thing. In this case, difference does seem like kind of a bad thing because a lot of creatures died, a lot of people died. Well, in a way too, though it, it does it does serve the purpose of bringing peace. So. I think the the interesting thing about the movie we talk about the duality of Iboshi, but also the the forest gods themselves are unwilling to change and unwilling to listen to reason a lot of the time. Like even when presented with humans that are willing to work with them or willing to I guess for lack of a better way 
to say it, talk it out. So maybe in a way, like, I think maybe the point is you have to get rid of the old guard from both sides for progress to happen. Maybe that's nihilist too, but (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. Lauren, what do you think? I, I agree. Um, because my first time watching the movie, I wanted to say it's it's the humans' fault. Humans ruin everything. Um, Aboshi wanted to kill the um, the deer god so she could, you know, get immortality, etc. And it's and it's like, oh, so it's the humans' fault. And then I rewatched it, and I'm like, well, the the all the creatures of the forest they don't want to listen to anything at all ever. And the wolves repeatedly say that they hate humans. Mononoke repeatedly says that she hates humans, and there's no there's no compromise. There's no working together. Um, to but be it, fair, the humans have done nothing but tear down their environments and oh, yes. kill their brethren. Yeah, it's one, oh yeah, God. it's one of those yes. things where they're super they're super bad. There's bad on both sides because the demons of the or the the demons of the the gods of the forest like, did attack the humans initially when they showed up, like, maybe even before they started tearing things down or whatnot. It seems almost like human sets foot in forest, forest god comes to mess things up, (laughs) you know? So I I agree with that, too. I don't think it's really either side's fault. And I do think that in the end, kind of that, like, that cleansing (laughs) forest god rain that brings the forest back and everything is very symbolic of lots of bad things have happened, but now we can move forward together. Mm-hmm. I do think the humans get off pretty, uh, pretty cheap, pretty easily. It's, well, of course, yeah, and I mean, I think in for the their end... hubris, and they they <laughs> killed gods. Like they straight up said, like, yeah, you know, it's pretty difficult to kill a god. That's but, one of the you know what they're doing. Honestly, one of the most level. chilling lines in the entire movie is when Iboshi straight up says, "Now I will show you how to kill a god." Yeah, yeah. like it's just it's like. At that moment, you realize that she really does not care for the balance, and she does not care about, like, the consequences of what she's about to do. And the, uh, the monk, um, I can't think of his name, Jikobo, like, who befriends Ashitaka in the beginning, he, at the end, he kind of justifies, um, Iboshi, like, doing that by saying, uh, he says, the thirst to possess heaven and earth is what makes us human, um, so saying like, well, of course, you know, going after and just, you know, wanting, wanting mortality and killing a bunch of gods. Well, you know, it, it's what makes us human. It's, 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 it's totally fine. Which um, is so awful. It's like a yeah. omen that the hubris is going to return. Yeah. This is all temporary. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which if you think about it is very true to life. How many times mm. have there been earthquakes and forest fires and tsunamis and how often have humans like continued to just rebuild in those same places? Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's no, like... The Iboshi could make the same mistake. She just kind of shrugs and says, oh, I'll do it different next time. I really enjoy her complexity, but I think it's almost the most interesting thing is the people. It takes time to humanize the people who live in the town who are just like, they're just like workaday blue-collar folks. And they don't know about the god-killing and all that. Or if they do, they see it as like, that is the enemy. Mm -hmm. And... You know, you almost get into the dangers, the, yeah, <laughs> the dangers yeah. of authoritarian rule and listening, just like, you know, listening to the person above you because mm-hmm. they say, they're like, oh, I'll pay your paycheck and this is what's up. And you're like, all right. Yeah. That sounds right. And I, I, I don't know. I think that the another interesting choice that this movie does is it does give that kind of uh, fallibility to what are described as gods. We have the wolf, like we have them, we see them all infighting. We see them 
disagreeing on the best course of action. We see them So my afraid. favorite things about polytheism and, like, any society is the fallibility of the gods. It's mm-hmm. like, oh, they're just, like, super-powered humans. <laughs> they're just, they're figuring it out as they go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's funny. So, uh, the first time that I saw this movie, like, for real, <laughs> uh, I was camping with my high school boyfriend, and we were watching it in his parents' trailer, because we had, were pretty well done with nature at that point, <laughs> and we are like, oh, we're in nature, this is a good movie to watch, and I am notoriously bad for falling asleep during movies, and so I fell asleep while we were watching it, because it was late at night, and when they kill the forest god, I sprung awake and turned to Trent and was like, don't worry, the great elk lives within me. And then immediately (laughs) fell back asleep. So for a long time, that was like the only part of the movie that I remembered until I watched it again. That is the the true moral of the movie. (laughs) Is that the great elk lives within us all. (laughs) I mean, we've been talking about hubris and uh, man versus nature, but I think it really comes down to the great elk and, you know. How he lives within us all. (laughs) We have a little bit of the great elk in us. Yes, so. Yeah. Not really, uh, it's more of an anecdote than anything, I guess, but I, c- I can't talk about this movie without telling that story, because it's one of the funniest <laughs> things that's ever happened to me. <laughs> uh, was this the first time that you'd seen it? Uh, so, this was the first time I'd actually seen Princess Mononoke in full. Yeah. I've seen bits of it in different uh, like pop culture classes, uh, as... Uh, the, the, this was one of the go-tos, and any time they talked about anime... And uh, they show the uh, the man versus nature of this, and the uh, the one that I got that I saw the most was um, shortly after the the forest, the spirit of the forest is killed when there's just like poison spewing everywhere. They would always bring up that clip and talk about uh, the how this movie is about you know about how we're destroying nature, and it's one of the more environmentalist movies of our time, which is true. But finally seeing it, I'm like, yeah, it's pretty straightforward. I'm almost more interested in the uh, human aspect, of, uh, in the uh, the hubris of it, mm-hmm. which is why I think I just keep saying that same point over and over again. <laughs> I think it's, yeah, I get, we talked about this a little bit before we started recording. I think that the, the anti-capitalist theme is almost more yeah. interesting than the environmental theme mm-hmm. yeah. because that it's just like there. It's so in your face. Maybe, maybe, <laughs> I mean, also maybe because we're like... <laughs> We're liberal trash that's already on board with that. We're like, yeah, dude, chopping down the forest to make your guns is wrong, obviously. Super bad. Speaking of which, gun control has been an issue for, like, seven decades, apparently, and I just had to get that joke in. (laughs) Yeah. So, a little bit about, uh, we talked about this, too. I think the, the U.S. release date history for this movie is super interesting, and I'm really glad if you... It's interesting because if you think about it, we almost never got to see this because of the complete disaster that was the Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind initial release. So uh, for our listeners, if you've never if you've never heard of this, probably good. But in the 80s, uh, I, some... That's when your parents were alive. Yes. I can't, I can't remember the name of the company, probably because they have been shamed into bankruptcy at this point. But they were able to secure the rights to Nausicaa. And they cut 30 minutes out of the movie, completely changed the story, like, nixed the main character, almost all of the themes, and they called it Warriors of the Wind, 
So that's basically what Warner Brothers did to uh, Zack Snyder's masterpiece, Batman vs. Superman. Yikes. Never say that again. Anyway. <laughs> out, out this week on DVD. <laughs> anyway, so because of that, uh, Miyazaki was very reticent to ever let Americans do his movies again, which I can't blame him for. And the rights to Princess Mononoke were given to the Weinstein Company. And almost immediately, having learned nothing ever from anything, Harvey Weinstein was like, shit, we gotta change some of this. And so uh, Studio Ghibli very kindly sent him a gift to encourage him not to do that. You know, he probably wanted to cut out like some of the lopped off limbs and things like that and market it and make he it was shorter, pro- he was like, market what if- it to kids. He was like, what if we made her prettier? But anyway, uh, so they sent him a katana with the message, no cuts. <laughs> <laughs> and so we are very lucky to have what we have. And because of that, Disney later was given the rights to Miyazaki movies forever because Weinstein almost ruined it, which is good because I hate Harvey Weinstein and I'm glad to have his grubby hands not on something I love. (laughs) But yeah, so the only real differences in the Americanized version, uh, we have the script that it was translated and then adapted by Neil Gaiman. So Neil Gaiman? Neil Gaiman. 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 I've always Gaiman. heard Gaiman. Okay, whatever. Neil Gaiman. <laughs> Sorry <laughs> to Neil Gaiman, who I'm sure is listening. <laughs> He's probably doing right. <laughs> anyway, so he anglicized? Wow. He I anglicized. Just, I just forgot that word completely. I, he anglicized the script a little bit to make it a little bit easier for American audiences to understand, but the English translation that we get is very close to the actual story, and kind of sparked this like i think more respect for japanese films in the west which is good however the other thing that weinstein flubbed of course uh because he was so salty about not being able to make edits when they did finally put it into theaters despite having spent all of this money on an all-star cast they put it into i think it was half the theaters they had said they were going to this is nineteen ninety. Like this is Minnie Driver, the star of breakout hit Goodwill Hunting. Come on. Yeah, you have Billy Crudup, you have all of these other people. Plus, um, you, there has always been an audience in America for anime uh-huh. and who are like rabidly interested in seeing things like that on the big screen. The DVD sales of this movie helped further. Yeah, that. so yeah. we end up with this like box office bomb in a uh-huh. way that then ends up being the most critically acclaimed movie of the year. And it's just like, I just want to point out that it's like, wow, if you just leave things alone and yeah. present them to people... They like them. Especially galling, <laughs> given the fact that it was the biggest movie ever in Japan until Titanic came out a few months later. Yeah. Until Titanic. Love <laughs> it. It replaced <laughs> E.T. <laughs> An yeah. interesting breadth of movies there for Japan. <laughs> but yeah, so I guess that's a little bit of a tangent. But I felt it was necessary to talk about it because Harvey Weinstein almost deprived us of Miyazaki forever. See, I had no idea about that. <laughs> like if he you... did give you Carol. He did give me Carol. He did not buy them any Oscars though, like he did for Gwyneth Paltrow. He tried. So... <laughs> yeah. Um. Yeah. So was I just it? defending Harvey Weinstein? Yeah. What the hell? <laughs> Who are you? <laughs> totally betray the ethos of this podcast, which is pro Chris Evans, anti Harvey Weinstein. <laughs> yes, the best stance to have. Man, imagine if Chris Evans was like a voice oh star for God. a Miyazaki movie. I, I've... <laughs> 
<laughs> you know what the worst part is? Is I'm the one who brings out the Chris Evans corner every week now. So <laughs> it's like I wasn't even going to talk about it. There really wasn't a way to do it, and you just brought it to me. It was a gift. Well, you can do the transition now since you got that gift. You was... can bear that burden. <laughs> Wait, hold on. Let me look at the notes. <laughs> <laughs> so it's going to be a seamless transition. Yeah, then. just edit this out and post. It's all good. No, no, you're taking it away from you're me. You're on the wrong page. I don't know. <laughs> indoctrination ah yes all right so i guess on that note there is this yeah (laughs) on that note uh we talked about this a little bit the last time we talked about miyazaki but there's this ridiculous assumption that all animated movies must be for children Mm -hmm. and like lauren said this is not a movie for children it is not and i just i I think it's weird that we have that idea because some of the more thoughtful things that I've seen have been animated movies that were maybe more geared towards adults. And I think it it gives you more freedom to do things without like CGI. There's also this weird realm where there are movies that are for children and for adults. What? Dude. No. That's <laughs> too weird. <laughs> it's like whenever you watch an animated movie in the video store. You'll always get someone who says, oh, it sucks that they make you watch this, huh? Like, nah, man. I wanted to watch the Lego movie. Or Inside Out's the greatest movie of the year. Right. It's yeah. so, so weird. And I think it's it's definitely uh, a cultural thing mm-hmm. where we have, like, super relegated it to kids stuff. And it's interesting to me because so many people with Mononoke specifically get upset about that. Like, oh, this movie would be so great if it didn't have such this, like, heavy-handed theme <laughs> we see that exact same thing this year with zootopia which get which i have been told several times it'd be great if it just didn't get so political at the end and it's like one of the core tenets of the movie and it's there's no reason that so for some for some reason because a movie is just for kids many people think that means it must be sanitized of mm-hmm. any messages at all of any ideas of any positions and just by having a certain belief or a certain ethos, it's suddenly propaganda or indoctrinization. And it's, uh, I mean, while I, well, you know, while we do have to be wary of propaganda and indoctrination, which, wow, that is a word to stumble over. Indoctrination is what you're looking for, actually. Am I saying indoctrination? I am. <laughs> yes. Huh. That was fun. It's all right. Anyways, with indoctrination. <laughs> Indoctrination. <laughs> I I claim to be a writer. Here, sometimes. Here's the water. Do you need that? <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it's I, I don't know. I, it's there are a number of things that always so that always baffle me when it comes to movies, especially when it comes to parents and children. One of the, the number one thing is that nudity and sex are bad, but violence is a okay. Yeah, yeah, actually, by that tenet, this is a great kids movie. Yeah, <laughs> and the number two thing is that anything that tries to give you a message at all that isn't just some kind of be your best self is 
you know, gross, and why would they do that? And that just seems really unnecessary. I don't see why they had to shove that down our throats. It's so silly. We talked about this in the Inside Out episode. Like, kids are Mm. smart, and nobody gives them enough credit. And we also talked about this in the other Miyazaki episode, where that's, I think, his greatest strength is that he understands that children are intelligent. They're looking for messages. They're Mm -hmm. looking for things to latch on to. And really, if we're not going to teach children things when they're children, when are we expecting them to learn about the world? Mm -hmm. You know? Anyways, this movie is clearly not a kid's movie. <laughs> I think with Miyazaki movies, it is important to talk about that, yes, though. Because no he do, like he is very smart in making movies that you can... like. Even if I don't think that this movie is geared towards children, I do think you could show it probably to, like, not, like, tweens. Mm-hmm. Like, nine, like, nine to twelve-year-olds would still appreciate this movie. Mm-hmm. And I think that they will take something from it. And there's no sex or nudity, so you don't have to worry oh about it. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. That is, working at a video store, that has been the most baffling thing over the mm-hmm. years, is people that will definitely let their kids watch people blow each other up, but don't want them to see people kissing. Mm-hmm. Like, I... Speaking of Green Room, I had someone turn down one movie because there was, like, Mild sexual content for Green Room. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> All right, bro. I was like, like uh, just so you know, like a guy's arm gets mangled and people die. No, it's. it's but fine. there's no sex, right? No, no sex. No. All right. Good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right. So the, this this has been personal axe grinding. <laughs> we are. Yeah, it sounds like we're kind of coming a little bit towards the end. Uh, Lauren, do you have any final points that you would like to make about Mononoke? Um, I will say I don't think this is Miyazaki's best movie. I My my favorite one is Spirited Away, and I don't know if you call that his absolute best, but that that is the one that makes me cry over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. I think that <laughs> one has so much heart. Um, and it's not that Mononoke lacks heart. It's just that, like... I'm not really sure what it is, but it. I feel like, like I, I don't know. There's just something in it that just makes it. I don't want to say like a colder film of his, but it's it's definitely like we said, just not. It's not a kids movie. It doesn't have that like. Well, everything is sunshine and rainbows and wonderful. Even though they like, try to make it the ending kind of like that, where Boshi's like, I'm gonna build a better village. And Monoki is like, I'm going to live in the forest because I still hate humans, but I love you. <laughs> and Nashtok is like, cool, I'll work, in, I'll work at the Ironworks. And, every, and everyone just goes their separate ways. And I, and I didn't buy that at all. Yeah. Like, like Tyler had said before, I just didn't buy that. Yeah, I do think Spirited Away has a certain special insightfulness that is really transcendent I in think the it's, way that... It's... It, it's the culmination of like all the different themes that we have throughout his movies. I mm-hmm. think it really, I think it, I will definitely, I'll go on record and say, I think it's his best movie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and the IMDb 250 agrees. Yeah. Just the kind of people I want behind me at all times. <laughs> for sure. <laughs> yeah. I, I think that Mononoke is, it's very good. It's a product of its time that kind of also transcends its time. And I think that it was kind of the harbinger of greater things to come. It's also a beautiful, like it's just so, aesthetically yeah. beautiful. <laughs> yeah, yes. His, the art direction is phenomenal, and I don't. We didn't really get to touch on that a whole lot, but yeah, just shouts out to the every people single that did Miyazaki that. movie. We can do that, and just like, man, <laughs> this is stunning. It's so beautiful, yes. and the piano music is so great. <laughs> so, if you were wondering, with our after our last Miyazaki discussion, did, does he still have it? Did he still make beautiful movies? He does. <laughs> yes. All right, so we shall now go to recommendations. Oh, she did it. It's two weeks in a row. <laughs> two weeks so in a row. I got it. Uh, 
Lauren, do you have a movie that you would like to recommend? Um, I, the first movie that came to my mind um, is called Blood, The Last Vampire. Um, I don't know if you guys have seen that. I have not. Nope. It came out in 2000. Um, anime film uh, by uh, directed by Kita Kobu, actually. I'm not, and I haven't seen anything else by Kita Kobu, but Blood Last Vampire also came on Cartoon Network at some ungodly hour. And and if we think Mononoke isn't a children's movie, huh? Um, it, this is not, I don't know why Cartoon Network even, well, I don't know. Well, to be fair, they did have the Adult Swim block. So maybe you were just tuning into the Adult Swim block when you weren't supposed to. <laughs> that, that, that is, that is very, very true. Um, <laughs> um, it's hard to explain what Blood Last Vampire is about, but it is just like bloody vampire goodness is all I can really like that's the only way I can really describe it without giving like the whole plot away so if you enjoyed demon blood yes. <laughs> from this movie you'll enjoy vampire blood from this movie yes and those awesome like Japanese schoolgirl look uniforms and, and blood um, <laughs> and they made a terrible terrible uh, live action uh, adaptation in 2009 I believe starring um, the daughter from the George Lopez show Yes, <laughs> it was. It was really horrible. It was like awful. I just, I, I don't know what I was expecting, but it was, it was, it was horrible. So, so don't watch that. Watch, watch, the, <laughs> watch the other, watch the other one, and then if you really, really like the anime, then like sit through the live action remake and like you know get really mad at yourself a little bit. Um, <laughs> But yeah, I will say that Blood the last uh, Ben and I we had our our anime trash corner for a hot minute there because we were watching a different anime every week and Blood the Last Vampire was at the top of pretty much every list that we came across when we were searching for more things to watch. So I will co-sign that even if I haven't seen it. <laughs> um, I mentioned mine a couple of times throughout. Uh, it's probably lazy, but that's okay. Um, if you have seen Princess Mononoke but have not seen Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind. And you maybe want kind of that same message, but you do want to watch it with your little baby children. <laughs> Nausicaa is kind of, I think, the more sanitized version of Mononoke, even though it technically came out first. And it has slightly different themes, but it's close enough that if, if you like it, you'll like that one as well, basically. <laughs> with my recommendation, I went in the environmental bent, although after a discussion and after the things that positive maybe i should have gone more in the direction of a leader that is dangerous and you know leads the people in a direction that is uh that is a very negative one maybe like a culty movie like martha marcy made marlene or something like that but i want environmentalism and it's not a direct corollary but when i realized i had a chance to praise kelly reichert i had to take it and uh the movie i'm talking about is night moves it's reichert's 2013 movie about uh radical environmentalists blowing up a dam Sorry, Ooh. Jesse Eisenberg, Dakota Fanning, and Peter Sarsgaard. How have I never heard of them? Uh, it was pretty small. Oh, yeah, Aaliyah Shockhead's in that, too. I definitely thought that, now that you just told me who's in that movie, I definitely thought that Blue Ruin was that movie. There's, de I mean, there are, certain, <laughs> there are definitely aesthetic similarities, and I think that's also why I thought of Martha Marcy May Marlene. Uh, there's a certain uh, thoughtful and even visual uh, similarity between those, but... Uh, it, it, I, I really enjoyed this one. I did not quite as much as, say, Meek's Cutoff, which is just a masterpiece from Reichardt. And also I can talk about how I'm looking forward to Certain Woman, which is Reichardt's 2016 Sundance movie that took a mysteriously long time to get picked up. That stars 
uh, starring Kristen Stewart, who's okay, Kristen Stewart, Michelle Williams, and Laura Dern, which would then lead to another tangent about how Kristen Stewart and other young uh, franchise actors have gone on to work with incredible indie and art directors like uh, like Kristen Stewart and Robert Pattinson have done that. But that is like a 12 tangents. Uh, watch Night Moves. <laughs> oh, my God. You said Laura Dern and my mind just went, oh, my God. I don't know why I didn't mention it. I saw Swiss Army Man. I don't know why I didn't mention that at the beginning uh, for what I recently so watched. Um, but you said Laura Dern, and Laura Dern like is, is included in that film in a very hilarious way. But mm-hmm. – um, Swiss Army Man is probably one of the greatest films that I have seen in years, in a, in one of the greatest films I've ever seen, period. So please go watch it if it is in a theater near you. Damn it. Now we have to go do that, like, right now. I have don't have plans for I have night. been dying to see that movie, Me actually. Me, too. I've disappointed in myself that it's been out for a week, and I haven't. Or is it two weeks? It's been out two, for two weeks. Two weeks. Oh, I am shame. I haven't even seen I'm Finding so Dory yet. There, I'm so behind. My shame is now on record. <laughs> Laura right. Dern is incredible. We do not appreciate her enough. We true, true, true. Wow, the heart. <laughs> but um, real quick before we go into more tangents, our trivia of the week. Uh, we talked about the art direction briefly, but it turns out that Miyazaki himself went in and of over a hundred thousand animation cells, personally redrew or corrected eighty-eight thousand of them on his own to make it look exactly as perfect as he wanted it to. And it's just good to know that regardless of what I do in my life, I will never be as dedicated to art as that man is. <laughs> and no matter how hard I try, I just could, I don't know if I have that kind of dedication in me. <laughs> do gay spirits count as art? Cause you know, they, if they do, that might be the place that might be it, but uh, that's embarrassing. So we can't talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> And then the trivia for this week, as uh, I have already used up how many Miyazaki movies are on the IMDb 250, five. Uh, I'm going to mention how many 1997 movies are on the 250, also five. Uh, they do not include Titanic some, for some reason. It is not considered one of the 250 greatest. You know, I think that's actually unfair. <laughs> I'm but, a giant Titanic stan. <laughs> <laughs> but it does have... Uh, Goodwill Hunting, as covered in our second ever episode, also featuring Mini Driver, although Mini Driver didn't join Mononoke until 1999 when it was released in the United States. Children of Heaven, Life is Beautiful, and L.A. Confidential. Those are the 1997 movies on the list. Was a good year for the middle drama, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it used to be great decades for the middle dramas, and now we I don't do. Really... I, I do miss that. <laughs> now it is great television for the middle dramas. <laughs> yep. <laughs> All but right. That's our show, Kayla. That is. All right. Thank you, Lauren, very much for joining us. Oh, thank and you for having us. me this great movie um if any of you are interested in following us on social media or if you yourself are interested in being on this podcast it is as simple as sending us an email to ltrfipod at gmail.com uh just you can shout us a line if you want to criticize us or if you want to give us a list of movies that you'd be interested in talking about feel free to do that we love hearing from you guys a shorter quicker more interactive way to get a hold of us is our twitter which is also ltrfi pod um we have a facebook which is facebook.com slash let the right films in 
where we post the show notes and links to things that we find interesting. Our Tumblr is lettheritefilmsin.tumblr.com, where Tyler is currently making a name for himself, becoming a famous gift maker. <laughs> Jeff. <laughs> Jeff. Oh, uh, God, no, no, sorry, you can never be on again. a very flattering exaggeration, <laughs> but I appreciate it. Anyway, uh, we also post the show notes there and interesting film posters and art and all that cool peanut stuff. <laughs> so peanut butter. <laughs> um, we have a Pinterest, which is LTRFI, I think. Is that huh? correct? Oh, True. shit, we suck at this. We have a Pinterest. You can Google you it. You don't need to sell every social network. They can find all these social Pinterest. networks listed on the different social yes, networks. Yes, I know, but Pinterest is an important one. <laughs> anyway, last but not least, Tyler has his own personal letterbox where he ranks the movies that we talk about and other things and does many reviews. That is letterbox.com slash Tyler Tells Tales. It's a fun little community there. It is super cool. Uh, and if you wanted to do us a huge favor and subscribe and review us on iTunes so that we can possibly one day be famous and make money off of this that or would... if a review is too imposing just like a comment just like you can even just give us stars you don't even have to like write things if that's too intimidating for like, you need more cat need more of the cat on the podcast like <laughs> she's right the there time. she's laying on a towel next to us bleeding. well now we have more cat on the podcast and they can't use that comment okay well there could always be more cats anyway okay. uh yes so that is our show thank you very much for listening and for interacting with us or whatever it is that you choose to do as we all know jurassic world is a terrible movie and always will be ah. see you at the pants <laughs> conference <laughs>